We continue this morning with the conclusion of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, which we began to look at last week. You'll recall that Jesus reveals her troubled past. She perceives him to be some kind of a prophet. They have this conversation, which we looked at, about the place and the nature of true worship. And at the very end of the text last week, Jesus discloses himself to this woman as the Messiah. The Messiah. And we pointed out that he does not do that in the south, down around Jerusalem or in Judea. But he's up here in the north in Samaria, and he's willing to disclose his Messiahship there. They are not carrying the same political overtones of what the Messiah should be and do as the Jews in the south are. In any event, this brings us to the beginning of our text this morning, which I want to look under three headings. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. Come and see, open your eyes and look, and the Savior of the world. So we're in John chapter 4, beginning of verse 27. And the first point is come and see. So the text says, just then, verse 27 tells us, just as Jesus told her he was the Messiah. Right at that point, the disciples return. And they're shocked. They're surprised to find him talking with a woman. Right, we looked a little bit at this last week. It violates all the social conventions set up between men and women, especially between rabbis and women, but also between Jews and Samaritans. Here's some comments from the rabbis of the day on this matter. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman. Here's another one. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself neglects the study of the Torah, and at last will inherit Gehenna. So, you know, this impulse in the Judaism of the day is to, you know, if God says A is forbidden or A is dangerous, there's a human impulse to set up a bunch of little fences and rules around it. So yet God gives you rule A, and then you create a rule B, C, D, E, F, and G around rule A. Now, this originally starts with sincerity, but it normally ends with hypocrisy and complete apostasy. It's a very dangerous dynamic. Jesus, on the other hand, he thinks this is hyper-restrictive nonsense. And so he just breaks the convention. And his disciples are surprised. But it's interesting in the text, it says no one asks him about it. Uh, they've probably learned that, you know, you probably don't ask Jesus questions about what he's doing. Or they may have understood, you know, they know he's got his reasons, or maybe they restrained themselves because the woman was still present. But in any event, the point is their return interrupts the conversation. And the interruption means the Samaritan woman leaves her water jar there and heads back into town. It's interesting, her conversation with Jesus has been so provocative, so enlightening, that she forgot the object of her journey to the well. She just leaves the jar there. She was fixated on literal water at the beginning. Remember last week? 
the literal water. Now perhaps she's tasted, or she's at least intrigued by the living water of which Jesus spoke. And so in haste, it looks like, she goes back to the town and she speaks to the people of the town in what appears to be some kind of a public forum of witnessing. And this is quite remarkable because this is a woman who had every reason to avoid the townspeople. It's pretty clear she came to the well. We saw this last week. She came to the well in the middle of the day when it's hot. Women came to the well in the morning or in the evening when it was cool and they came in groups. She came alone. She came in the middle of the day. She has a long, somewhat turbulent past. And there's a lot of shame involved. But here, she goes right out to the people in the town. She involves herself and she makes her broken past public. In her testimony to Jesus, she says to the townspeople, come and see a man who told me everything I did. They know what she's talking about. Again, we've seen this in John's Gospel. Notice the simple words, come and see. Jesus said it to the disciples. The disciples said it to one another. Now the Samaritan woman says it to the townspeople. Come and see. She's excited. You know how you... We know she's excited because there's a bit of hyperbole here. He told me everything I did. Not true, but we know what she's referring to. Jesus exposed her condition. And it's not something she's glossed over. It's not something she forgot, even though they, they moved on to talk about worship. It's something which has done its work in her heart. So she's hopeful. And she has a kind of cautious excitement. And she asks the townspeople, could this be the Messiah? Now she's open, maybe more than just open, to the idea that Jesus is not just a prophet. He might be the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Maybe his testimony that he's the Messiah is true. So you can see this in the text. If you look at verse 30, it says they came out of the town. And they made their way toward him. This is remarkable how successful this brief witness of this woman is. In mass, the people, despite her past, or is it because of her past? But but in droves, they come. And so, already in the text, there's something wonderful about the grace of the gospel on display. Right? This is a gospel where God uses the foolish things of the world and the weak things to shame and confound the wise and the strong things. This woman has minimal knowledge about who Jesus is. It's not even clear that she's even converted yet. She certainly doesn't have her act together so that she's ready to be a witness for Jesus. But she's going to be an instrument in the conversion of a whole town. I mean, could Jesus have sent a better, more effective witness than this unlikely woman? That seems unlikely. And this is the gospel turning all your expectations on their head. Now, if you look carefully at this text, John has structured it in a very... Uh, artistic way, in a provocative way, 
You'll notice that verse 39 in the text, this is when the Samaritans come back to Jesus, um, it could have easily followed verse 30. But the flow is interrupted by this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. This conversation takes place while the Samaritans are on their way to him. And so the encounter with the Samaritans brackets the conversation. Samaritans, conversation with disciples, more Samaritans. And so the conversation is intended to throw some light on the situation with the Samaritans. So that's important to see here. The conversation with the disciples has not left the topic of the Samaritans. And that brings us to the second point then, which is this conversation, which I've titled, Open Your Eyes and Look. So the woman has left, and the disciples who had gone into town to buy food, they urged Jesus to eat something. Now, Jesus, we know, right, we know from last week's text, he was tired, he was thirsty, and he was certainly hungry. But he decides to defer eating for a while. He's going to lift the conversation up to a higher plane. He says to his disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Now, the disciples here, and this is understandable, right? They went into town to buy food. Right? They think, well, somebody must have brought him some food. And then Jesus says, my food, is my sustenance, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is a theme introduced here that will be enlarged greatly in John's gospel and Lord willing, we'll have opportunity to see it again and again. But Jesus is enacting something. He did it throughout his whole life. Deuteronomy 8. Man does not live by bread alone. Right? He's the living image of this. But by every word, every last word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, this remark sums up, this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, that's a summary from Jesus of his mission from the Father. Right? This is his authorization, his vocation, his task. And it determines his entire existence as the word made flesh. My food, that is again my nourishment, my substance, is to do the will of him who sent me. Obedience to the Father's will is Jesus' calling. And the splendor of this obedience is desperately needed by us because we're fickle and disobedient, and weak, and frail, and we wander. This obedience is our life. This is obedience active, right? It's it's obedience which is perfect, personal, perpetual, entire, exact, inward, outward, obedience of every thought, Every word, every deed. Obedience active through the totality of his life. Obedience passive at the cross. It's obedience joyful and liberating and delightful. And obedience agonizing in drops of blood and shame. It's obedience not rendered by Adam, not rendered by Israel, not rendered by you, not rendered by me, not rendered by any human creature. 
It's the obedience necessary for our restoration and our righteous standing before God. That obedience is Jesus' food. And he's engaged concretely in this obedience, in this weary conversation he's having, in his weakness and in his flesh with the Samaritan woman. And as the crowd is coming to him, he's still focused, riveted on his mission. Thus, he's attending to the food of his father's will. He'll have some food to eat later, but for now, his mission is in active mode. So he tells the disciples, no, we're not eating now. I mean, on one level, it's something like when, uh, you know, we all have things that we love, things that absorb us and draw us in. Right? You, have, you have stuff that you can get lost in and lose track of time in. And if you're absorbed enough, maybe you'll forget even to eat. Well, for Jesus, his Father's will across the scope of his life is that thing that he's engrossed in. It's not that he doesn't need to eat or sleep. We've already seen Jesus came eating and drinking. He likes to eat and drink. But everything for him is subordinated to the one thing. And that's the will of the Father, his mission. Notice he says in this text, it's the will of him who sent me. Him who sent me. That's an important phrase. It's used 20 times in John's gospel. This is the first occurrence of it. Jesus will always speak of the one who sent me. And you know what it does? It establishes that Jesus is pre-existent. Namely, this means that he was before he became man. He was sent by the Father into the world. He wasn't just adopted by the Father or used by the Father or an instrument of the Father. So he's sent by the Father into the world, notice, to finish his work. Not just to do the will of the Lord, but to finish the work. You know, every human being has, and we have to discern this, like something stamped on their forehead that says, the work. This is the work that God has given me to do. I have to tend to this work. Jesus has that writ large stamped on his being. Notice, this is not vague. For Jesus, there's a well-defined, robust, full, demanding task. He says, I have to finish it. And at the end of his life, in that beautiful uh, high priestly prayer in John 17, when Jesus is praying, right before the passion of his cross, he says to the Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work. You've given me to do. Like I didn't just run around in life doing a bunch of vague spiritual things. I'm doing the work, the task, the crisply defined labor with contours that you've called me to. And of course, for Jesus, his work is unique. We can't do it. We're disqualified. His obedience covers your disobedience. His purity covers your impurity. His fidelity covers our infidelity. It's a magnificent thing. But he does, here in this text, want to sweep you up into his work. He wants us to be caught up into his mission. He's going to insist that we get involved, that these disciples get involved. So immediately here, you'll see this in the text, immediately after describing his food and his mission to do the will of the Father, to finish the work he gives me, he says to them, don't you have a saying 
it's still four months to the harvest. I mean, that's a curious transition, isn't it? I mean, think about this. My food is to do the will of the Father, to finish the Father's work. By the way, do you have a, don't you guys have a saying? What he's doing is he's saying, you're not going to be able to stand by and just watch my obedience. Right? You're going to be, you're going to be called into this thing that I'm doing. So, don't you have a saying, it's still four months to the harvest? It's a proverb. And the idea is, here's the idea. You can sow, and then you can rest, take a break, and then a couple months later, you can reap. Right? It's still four months to the harvest. There's a natural gap between reaping and sowing. Right? I mean, imagine if there wasn't. Jesus is going to go on to talk about the fact that now that his kingdom has come, that gap is gone. I mean, if you just went out into the yard and stuck the seed into the ground and the tomato popped back up, right? even I would consider gardening under those conditions. Right? I probably still wouldn't do it, but I'd consider it under those conditions. But there's this natural gap where you have to, take, you have to do stuff in between. And tend to things. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you have this saying, there's four months, you can wait four months to the harvest. But he's saying a different dynamic is at work now that my kingdom's arrived. It doesn't work that way, he says. He's, I tell you, he says, open your eyes and look at the fields. Now remember, remember, this conversation is bracketed by the Samaritans who we were told right before this in verse 30 were coming out of the town to see Jesus at the well. They're walking out of town. They're coming out to where Jesus is. So almost certainly, Jesus is saying to his disciples, look at these Samaritans coming across the fields toward us. This is often missed, by the way, I think, by interpreters who take this as a general, look out at the, at the great vast world and the fields are ready for harvest. Jesus is talking about the Samaritans, right? The harvest is right. He's saying to his disciples, I've just sowed with this woman. You're about to reap. And there's going to be no four-month gap in between. There they are right here. They're coming to you. Get ready to reap. Even now, he says, even now he who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life that the sower and the reaper might be glad together. The point is that this end time harvest is already underway. Sowing and reaping now happen together in the church's life. The sower going out meets the reaper coming back in. They rejoice together. There's a new age, Jesus says, that I've appeared. I've ushered in this age. He's saying that the day spoken of by Amos the prophet, this was our Old Testament lesson today. Those days are upon us. You heard in that text Amos say this, when the days are coming, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. It's a picture in the prophet Amos of a time when the harvest is so fruitful and so abundant that it's reaped even as it's still being sowed. That's an image of the gospel era, the prosperity and the abundance of the gospel which has come in Jesus Christ. 
So verse 38, he says, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, but you've reaped the benefits of their labor. I mean, Jesus was the one doing the sowing. If you look at John the Baptist's ministry, you'll see that he baptized people near this area of Samaria. The prophet spoke to Samaria for hundreds of years. The people of Israel lived up there. So the ground was broken up and prepared by others for hundreds and hundreds of years. The disciples are just entering into the great age of the harvest. That's what Jesus is saying. So, of course, it's true that they will have to go out and sow in fields that perhaps have not been so well prepared. And we have to do the same thing. But we're already reaping, even as we're sowing. From the very beginning, the church was not just sowing, she was reaping. God has prepared the world for this harvest. So what does that mean for us? Well, it it means all of us are sowers and reapers. You're both sowing and reaping. And, And as such, you're laboring in the fruit that Jesus has procured by his obedience. And the time to be engaged in this is now, Jesus says. Even now, he says to his disciples, he says, don't say you have a four-month gap in here. So the church, the church doesn't just support missionaries. She is a missionary society. You're called to sow and you're called to reap. You're called to say, come and see. So finally, the third point, these approaching Samaritans, they reappear in the narrative Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Well, what was her testimony? It's incredibly simple. He told me everything I did. He told me everything I did. And they notice, so Jesus' exposing of her turbulent marriage history caused many people, the text says, to be saved. So again, the most unlikely person with the most unlikely history, has become the most effective witness. No training necessary. Just come and see. He did this for me. So they come. The Samaritans come to him. They urge him to stay with them for two more days. I mean, this whole thing is really a diversion, right? It's just an interruption. Jesus is trying to get to the north. He's trying to get to Galilee. But, you know, interruptions are, are, are the point of life, it seems, most of the time, Right? The interruption here takes a long time. And Jesus spends two more days. And because of his words, the text says, even more, many more, become believers. So having just barely got there, and having just barely sowed, Jesus and his disciples have reaped this harvest among the hated and among the despised half-breed Samaritans. What a difference about 48 hours has made here. The people originally believed on the woman's testimony, and they say, look, we don't believe any longer based just on what you said. They're not despising her testimony. On the contrary, they're confirming it. We all believe at first, most of us, on secondhand accounts, but eventually you have to hear the word of Jesus for yourself in his word. And that's what happens here. And it's the people of Samaria This is remarkable, who say, now we know this man is the savior of the world. Wouldn't you like to have the tapes 
of those two days that Jesus taught these Samaritans in that town. Not only is he the Messiah, he's the Savior of the world. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus said that. But it is not just for the Jews, right? We've already been told in John's Gospel, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? God so loved the world. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. Right? This is just what's going on here. Jesus moves beyond Judea into Samaria. And the Samarians, they know they're outsiders. Right? They know they're marginalized. They know the Jews don't think they're Jews. And they get the idea that the Messiah then is the savior of the world. And Jesus will later in this gospel move on to minister to Gentiles. Notice Jesus' movement from Judea to Samaria onto the Gentiles. That provides the pattern for what we later see in the book of Acts, where the church goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. This is the work begun in Jesus' own work that God wants you and I to participate in. It's a labor to be sure, but there's great, great joy in it in sowing and in harvesting. So I want to close with three brief points. Three brief points. The first one is this. You can be used mightily by God. Often people will say to me, oh, well, I've been such a failure. I have so much brokenness in my life. I've been a failure for so many years. I've been so, you know, up and down, on and off for so many decades. Well, let me tell you, if you're not on your seventh marriage, your personal life is probably not as a mess as this woman's was. Not that we should weigh these things. Even if it was, it wouldn't matter. Right? The point is, this is a woman, look, you do not, you're not on your sixth marriage and you have the rest of your personal life beautifully intact. This is a woman who clearly has a shattered, unraveling life. She's been a failure. She's completely broken. And her failing has lasted decades. And you know what? She converts a whole town to the gospel. That's it. Just by saying, I'm a failure. He told me what I did. Your brokenness may, in fact, be the thing which uniquely qualifies you to share the gospel. God can use you mightily to change the world. He delights to use weak, broken, frail, sinful things. I think it's too easy to slip into this notion that God uses only good, decent, moral people to do stuff. That's preposterous. That's not the gospel. And besides, there are no such people. So this is a very heartening story. The second thing is this. We should not lose heart if we don't personally see a harvest being reaped. Right? God is harvesting a flock all around the world, throughout the whole age. But it's often true that people are called to a life, if not a life, perhaps a long season of sowing. And of sowing in hope. There's no shame or failure in this. There should be no despair or discouragement in it. Keep sowing. 
Right? The, the only way Christians finally fail is when they quit altogether and give up. Keep sowing, keep praying, keep working, keep waiting, keep giving thanks in due time. Now, that due time could be eschatological, but in due time, we will reap if we don't grow weary. Right? The flip side of this is that you know, the success in reaping, let's say we've had some success in reaping. We've led some others to Christ or, or, or maybe, maybe greater things than that. But this depends on often unknown people who've gone before us, who've prayed and labored and sweated, who saw no harvest. So when we reap, there should be no pride, no lack of awareness that others have sown. Right? It's important to see that in this text, Jesus is the sower. Right? He's the one who is the word or the seed or the grain of wheat which falls into the ground and bears great fruit. In his resurrection, he's the first fruits of the harvest. And he's the harvester. Jesus is the sower, the reaper, the harvest, and the harvester. And in him, we rest and we work and we labor and we hope. That's the significance of the fact that he talks about his obedience and his labor and then he turns to them and says, hey, don't, do you, don't you have this proverb about sowing and reaping? So finally, the third point is this. Don't miss the summons here to the disciples to get involved in his work. There's many ways you can do this. Right? I mean, we have an outreach committee here, which is somewhat dormant, and the session is praying for, for people to be raised up by God to lead us in evangelism and outreach. Maybe you're that person. That's a a way. But there are other ways as well. There is great joy and gladness in the fields of harvesting. If we slide into the habit of all receiving and no kingdom labor, which I don't really think is an issue here, that we all all can excel more. But, But there are Christians who are like that. Right? That shrivels up a person's soul. And it dissipates our joy after a while. Get up, get out, go serve. That's the greatest tonic for struggling Christians. Go serve somebody else. So the text says, open your eyes and see. The fields are ripe for harvest. And we have this great promise for the age that we're in, for the age of sowing and reaping. It comes from Psalm 126, and I commend it to you. We used it for the call to worship this morning. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Amen.